I, I asked him a question. I said, are you telling me what I can and cannot say in my own classroom? Uh, at which point he shut down. <laughs> Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Lemonheads, to the Lions of Liberty podcast. As always, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And guys, I am truly, truly, truly excited about today's episode because I have a guest for you today who I've been looking to have on for quite some time. And we finally made it happen here in the 236th episode of this program, which of course means you can find the show notes page for today's episode, featuring links to just about everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 236. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. Find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the author of A Renegade History of the United States, a book I had been hearing the buzz about for quite some time and finally got around to reading recently. And it really is a fascinating look at American history from a perspective you quite literally will not find anywhere else in contemporary literature and certainly not in the majority of our universities. He teaches history and philosophy at Willamette University and is the founder of the soon-to-be-launched Renegade University, which he describes as the School for Dangerous Ideas. I am pleased to welcome in Mr. Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus, are you ready to roar? I'm always ready to roar. Awesome. That's what we like to hear here at Lions of Liberty. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about your work on uh, what you would call renegade history in a little bit. But First, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just start off telling us a little bit about your early life? You know, where did you grow up and what kind of influences did you have that eventually led you to pursue a career in academia? Well, I was born and raised in Berkeley, California in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And um, so, of course, I was surrounded by, you know, <laughs> the cream, I suppose, of the American left. My parents were were radical socialists uh, to the extent that they actually took jobs in, they were middle-class people, middle-class well-educated people who took jobs in industry and factories, steel work. Uh, they were steel workers and truck drivers and clerical workers so that they could organize the proletariat for revolution. And we lived about four blocks from the Black Panthers national headquarters. Uh, did, they, did they literally go into jobs like that with the idea of sort of organizing their fellow workers and actually kind of creating socialism within their working places? Is that something they actively pursued? Oh, yeah. So absolutely. So that was actually the strategy of many revolutionary socialist organizations through the 20th century. I don't know if they still do that. Or I, I bet some of them do. But yeah, I mean, in the as of the 60s and 70s, that's what they all did, really, all the all the revolutionary socialist organizations. Um, so and of course, they were all, you know, middle class or, you know, or upper class, uh, well-educated people who dropped out. So my, my stepfather uh, worked in a steel mill. And he worked uh, in an auto plant in Fremont, California. And then for several years, he worked as a truck driver for Safeway. Uh, but this was all, you know, this was with the Teamsters. So he was organizing, attempting to organize, you know, the, uh, the radical socialist uh, union within the Teamsters, which, of course, was a total failure. So, uh, yeah, my mother was a clerical worker at University of California doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, it was quite remarkable. And then all of their comrades or many of their comrades were doing similar stuff. So, I mean, you had like, you know, people who went to Yale and Berkeley 
or Madison, Wisconsin, who were, you know, working, uh, in, in, in factories. Right. <laughs> and that's what they did. And many of them actually still do that. Uh, some of their, a lot of their comrades ended up moving to Detroit, uh, in the seventies and eighties for obvious reasons and, uh, are still there. And it's, you know, it's now, I mean, then I sort of thought it was all romantic and and exciting, but you know, now it's just deeply sad to me. And you use that term comrade and it probably sounds tongue in cheek to a lot of people, but I mean, about 10 years ago, I was in a work environment that attempted to unionize. And and I'm not joking when I say I got a a letter from the union that actually used the word comrade. So I'm not sure if you're being tongue in cheek there, but I wouldn't be surprised if you're not. (laughs) Well, no, that's the term that they used. So, you know, I'm just being true to them. I mean, that's, that's, that's how they talked. I mean, that's how, that's the word that people in the left in all countries have used for you know more than a century. So it's perfectly apt to use that term. So obviously, I, I've been following your work and, and following on social you on social media, and I know that you are not a socialist. So when <laughs> did that sort of perspective start to change for you? When did you start to question a lot of the ideas that you were raised around? Uh, well, so I will say this about my parents: they did not sort of actively indoctrinate me. Uh, I don't remember ever being sort of told what to think about anything. But, I, you know, of course, I was nonetheless surrounded by it. So I, I, I just assumed that that was what good people did. They became socialists. Um, and I held that idea all the way through college. In fact, that sort of that was my mission in college was to, you know, first of all, learn what socialism was and then to become a socialist. And that's what I did. And then went to graduate school because that's, of course, what socialists could only do then because yeah, the life in a factory just did not appeal to me. It's either the factory or more education, huh? Yeah, it's either, you know, either a steel worker or a professor. So, and by that point, I mean, this is by then that's, this is, we're talking about the late eighties, early nineties, you know, there was very little of that industrialization is what it was called going on in the left. I mean, most of them had retreated to the academy because that was the only place they could control. So that's what I did. I decided to become a historian. I decided to become sort of like a Howard Zinn type historian with the express purpose of, you know, writing a radical history that would influence people, cause them to be radical and then we would have, you know, the socialist utopia. So, so did you originally start pursuing the work that became a renegade history as basically from a socialist perspective, looking to sort of justify that set of beliefs? Essentially, yeah. I mean, the strategy generally has been sometimes conscious and sometimes unconscious among left academics to historians, in particular, to look back, to look in the past and find people who agree with you. And then, and then put them in the front of the textbook, right? Highlight them, elevate them in the narrative, make them the heroes rather than George Washington or, or, or Edison or whoever. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that was, I guess that was basically my, my, what I wanted to do in the first sort of year or so. And so the other thing you're supposed to do if you're a socialist historian is write labor history because labor is where it's at. Labor is the most important thing. The class conflict, of course, is how history is determined. And, um, so I started looking around, I started reading a lot of labor history and I found that, you know, almost all labor history, and there's quite a lot out there, uh, was written about, guess what, you know, left-wing socialist or communist unions in American history. And, you know, by the end of that year, I was thinking that this can't be, I mean, it can't be that all American unions, uh, were this left-wing. And so I started to look for, you know, unions that weren't. And I almost immediately found out that the the great majority of American unions have not been left-wing, in fact, hostile to the left. And the biggest union in American history was the Teamsters in the 1950s and 60s under Jimmy Hoffa. 
and that Hoffa was the most popular union leader in American history. And so I said, this is very strange that there has not been a single book written about the Teamsters or Jimmy Hoffa by a historian. But of course, the commie historians had deliberately ignored him because he wasn't the right kind of unionist. So he was interested only in getting better wages and working conditions for his members and nothing else. And he was and he was very he was sort of actively hostile to social democratic and socialist unions and social engineering generally. Uh, so that's another reason they just they hated him. And ignored him. So I wrote my dissertation on Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, but it was really about, it was really an extended critique of left-wing labor history and social history generally. What I found, this is where sort of libertarianism actually entered my mind, although I didn't really know what it was at that time. What I found was that Hoffa was militant and successful and accountable, the most important thing, accountable to his members because he was forced to be not by ideology, but by competition with other unions. So in trucking, of course, there's, there's, you know, Teamsters faced all, there's all this, uh, trucking touches all these other industries, right? It's connected to all these other industries, which have these other unions. So all these unions were just sort of going at it, hammer and tong against each other for membership for uh, the workers in those industries. So they were at constant competition. And Hoffa had to be a good, accountable union leader because of that, or else he would lose his member. So it's a market analysis, actually, which, again, historians had ignored forever and ever. What they wanted was one big union, right, with no competition, a monopoly that would rule not just industry, but ultimately the world. <laughs> so I was arguing, I was like, hey, if we, you know, it seems to me that competition among unions is actually a good thing for the rank and file for ordinary workers, which they just hated. And I was, the book was attacked in the New York Times and the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because it had to be. So that was, but that was sort of the seeds of my turn. And then I became interested in foreign policy and began to notice that progressivism in particular was inherently imperialistic. The idea being, of course, that we, the elite, need to uplift the masses in the ghettos, but we also need to uplift the masses everywhere we find them. So that led me down another path. And then I also saw that I saw that, you know, what people in other countries were very interested in for more than, you know, 100 or 150 years was American stuff, American material stuff, consumer goods, popular culture, uh, much less interested in being bombed. So uh, that, you know, that sort of led me to think that, yeah, and progressivism, of course, was always hostile to popular culture and materialism, the good stuff that comes out of capitalism, what they loved in capitalism was the disciplinary part of capitalism, that you have to work hard, that you have to get up at a particular time every day and treat your body like a sort of live according to a, a mechanical clock, the rhythms of a clock rather than nature, et cetera. They, progressives love that, but they hated all this stuff that's fun that capitalism produces, which is exactly you know what the people, both in the United States and elsewhere, loved. Right? They, they had just the opposite take on capitalism was that the, the fun stuff is great. They're not so keen on working all the time. That really ties into a lot of the themes in your book. Um, the idea that 
you know, a lot of the uh, kind of the founding fathers and and people in the, of that time were were very obsessed with the idea of of work, of hard work, uh, of having to go and get up and do your work from nine to five, and that w- that was seen as really uh, a, a quality to aspire to. Whereas pleasure and you know drinking, booze, prostitution, sex, these were things that were really looked down upon by many of the political elites. Right. Yeah. So that is exactly a major theme in the book. Yeah. So that's one thing that's unified a whole bunch of groups that you would never otherwise connect. You know, the founding fathers, the Ku Klux Klan, Martin Luther King, all agreed on that. They all agreed on that, that the Puritan work ethic or the Protestant work ethic, the idea that one should work hard no matter what one gains from it, you know, was central and great. And the, the nuclear family ethic, the idea that, you know, the only way to be a healthy and fulfilled individual is to live in a nuclear family for your entire life. They all agreed on that. They were all also nationalists. They also believed that one should sacrifice oneself for one's country. Right uh, now, I, we I can see why your work is controversial to many because you just compared, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in, in those ways, there's in those ways, there's no question that they were identical, actually. So, in fact, in fact, in my book, you'll see that King, Martin Luther King, gave a whole series of sermons and lectures in the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, denouncing the work habits and sexual behaviors uh, and drinking and lack of work ethic among blacks. Which is quite ironic considering, you know, what we know about some of his sexual behaviors. Yeah, I mean, he was a hypocrite, but publicly, publicly, in his attitude toward black culture, it's hard to find a difference between him and the Ku Klux Klan, between him and racists. There's There's no question about that. I mean, even now, finally, there are even some sort of black radicals who have, have begun to see this as well. And they do, they call it now respectability politics, what King was putting forward. But yes, so if you connect this to capitalism, it becomes a little more interesting. Daniel Bell was a sociologist, great sociologist of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He wrote a, a very famous essay in the early 70s called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism which everyone should read, and in particular libertarians, in which he argues that capitalism is contradictory in a sense, internally contradictory, that it, as I was saying, it sort of, it is very puritanical on the one hand, right? It forces you to work hard and to be disciplined and to renounce bodily pleasures and your bodily desires, right? You have to do that in order to sit in a cubicle and work all day or work in, a, in, a, in an assembly line all day. So the puritanical side of American culture has loved that part of capitalism, but it simultaneously, as I was saying also, is producing all this stuff that is totally antithetical to puritanism, right? That goes straight to our hedonistic desires. It goes straight to our basis instincts. It goes straight to, you know, sex and drinking and partying and leisure and fun. Uh, And so capitalism is this fascinating system that is sort of always at war with itself, So the Founding Fathers, the Ku Klux Klan, Martin Luther King loved the puritanical side of capitalism and hated the hedonistic side of it. That really is a fascinating perspective on it because, you know, when they promote capitalism and they promote hard work, they then turn around and seem to have a problem with what the inevitable results of capitalism and hard work are, which is you're going to have more material things. You're going to have more free time on your hand, more money on your hands to pursue, you know, activities of, of leisure and, and pleasure. And right. that's those are the activities that still to this day in many areas are, are highly frowned upon by the political elites. Yeah, no, I know. It's it's quite an interesting contradiction. There are a handful of, and I'm trying to remember, just yesterday or a couple of days ago, I heard 
there's a handful of Christian conservative Republican types who are aware of this. Rick Santorum, I know, is one of them. He has said this many times publicly. I've seen him say it on, the t- on TV, that the Founding Fathers were interested in discipline and the renunciation of uh, bodily desires. And he was, com- and people, you know, thought that, people on the left thought he was an absolute re- retard for saying this. He was completely correct. There was an, I, there just a day or two ago, someone said the same thing. I saw it on the, somewhere in the media, some, some conservatives. So some Christian conservative types, social, social conservatives, are, know this, they understand it, but but most don't, and progressives are completely ignorant to it. And the thing is, progressives, you know, they they're they're essentially conservative in this way. They just don't know it. So they they want they want us to subsume our desires to the interests of the state, to the nation. I mean, this, this so this whole <laughs> this whole Kazir Khan issue and the you know the DNC with Trump insulting the. It's funny you brought that up because I was planning to ask you about that later, but let's just get into it now. Yeah, good God. I mean, so this is a great illustration of sort of how progressivism thinks, right? So we as progressives believe now that the Iraq war was totally unjust, murderous, imperialist, and probably racist in some way or another. That's what we think as progressives. And I basically agree with that. So, but then we find a Muslim who volunteered to fight in that war. And we now claim that he's a hero. <laughs> and also it's sort of, it's, it's multiculturalism because we now can say that Muslims are just like us in that they are just as willing to, the logic is just, Phenomenal. They're as willing to go abroad and kill other Muslims as we to, are. Yes, to volunteer to fight in murderous, racist, imperialist wars that are unjust. Right. It's like, what do you do then? I, like, how do you, how do you sort of intervene with these people? I mean, it is disturbing to see this father, and I'm sure he he means well, and I, I mean, I agree with actually a lot of what he said about the Constitution, but the fact that he's up there at the DNC, which is coronating Hillary Clinton, an active proponent of these. Wars right. uh, yeah. is just is just mind blowing. Yeah, the con- the contradictions were just staggering. I mean, it's just amazing. Yes, so that's that's also you know it's a form of assimilationism, which is another theme in my book. That you know, so every every minority group, every marginalized, excluded, oppressed minority group in American history has sought to assimilate at some point. I mean, the leaders of those groups, not everyone within them, but the leaders of the groups, every single one of them has at some point sought to assimilate into, into America. And that means into American culture. So to adopt the norms that we've been talking about, the Puritan work ethic and the nuclear family ethic and the nationalism. And, you know, that has always been seen as essentially progressive or progressives have always led those or have always championed those causes, right? Of people to assimilate without ever thinking about how fundamentally conservative, reactionary, repressive, and simply no fun those norms are. (laughs) That's what really makes me crazy. (laughs) Uh, So the the Obamas are a great example of this, right? So they, you know, they're the perfect American family. You know, Obama stopped smoking when he became president. Is that true? I feel like I've heard some some well, thought that he still sneaks a smoke now and again. Well, <laughs> again, like at least publicly. At least right? as in terms of the portrayal. What matters is what's public, right? So, 
you know, and like if you read Obama's memoir, he talks about how Michelle hates the fact that he likes basketball and wishes that he would play the cello instead of pick up pick up a cello instead of a basketball. And is that because basketball is seen as traditionally more related to African American culture and then that's just not acceptable? It's yeah, I mean it's not just black, it's black, but it's you know, it's also sort of lowbrow um sports generally. That kind of, you know, is just lowbrow whereas the cello represents high culture. Now the <laughs> Now if you want to talk about white supremacy, <laughs> Which I do. I do actually think that is a concept. I do think that's a meaningful concept. I think it's misabused all the time. But, you know, to me, that's an example of white supremacy, right? She thinks that a culture created clearly by Northern European white people is superior to a culture that is, you know, played mostly or participated in mostly by black people. It's phenomenal. But this this is all missed. No one gets this, right? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> So, I mean, in the, so the left loving Obama largely because I believe he is assimilated or represents assimilationism is so fundamentally conservative in an unconscious way. It's it's both cultural assimilation as well as sort of political assimilation as well. He was supposed to represent radical change and radical progressivism. And he's really no, and policy wise, not that different than George Bush. So that stuff we all know. I mean, that, that thank God it took several years, but you know, now it's, now we have shown most people on the left about that. I mean, most people on the left are now aware of that, right? That, you know, he was he was a man of the establishment. And that was he always was. He promised to be a man of the establishment and he became one. Right. They they do actually most of them do see that. So, I mean, believe me, I wanted to shoot myself for several years talking to these people about that. But no, I, I mean, on the, the cultural stuff they miss, they still don't get this. They still think it's wonderful that the Obamas are such a perfect American family. And represent, and you know, look at Michelle. I mean, actually, she's it's she's very important in this way, right? What what is Michelle Obama about? She's about people eating healthy and exercising. Her view of healthy, anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Which, by the way, is very different than the attitudes of most Black working class people. And I'm not saying this; it's not a stereotype. It's I mean, there have been many, many polls, many, many studies on this about body image among blacks and whites, and they differ radically. Just in their values. Black women and white women think very differently about what a body should look like. Mm-hmm. Michelle's values comport with the values of whites, clearly. Black women are much less ashamed of their bodies. They're much less ashamed of weight. In fact, they value some weight on their bodies, and women, white women, generally speaking, do not. There's very stark differences, and many, many social psychologists have shown this with studies. Which is Michelle sort of Obama, an admirable quality in, in many ways, to oh, not be ashamed of yourself, of who oh, you are. Oh, exactly. Which, which culture is superior there, right? Um, so, yeah, and Michelle Obama is clearly lined up with, <laughs> with white women on that, uh, as has Oprah Winfrey, right? But, yet, you know, but we've a white prog- – ask, ask a white liberal woman – who they think is just the greatest person on earth. It's going to be Michelle Obama or Oprah Winfrey. Right. And they're going to, but they're also, when they're saying that, they're going to think that, oh, I'm championing a black person that makes me better too. <laughs> well, well, my sister is one of the more bigger progressives I know, and I'm not worried about her hearing this because I know she's not going to listen. And uh, she's loves Michelle Obama. She cannot shut up about her. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. So ask them why, you know, <laughs> ask them why they love them. I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's why. I think because they are doing what black people are supposed to do, right? They're doing the good things. They're not, they're not rappers, you know. They're um, they don't have a big ass and <laughs> talk about having a big ass as being a good thing, uh, right? They're acting white. I mean, in shorthand, that's what it is, you know. 
This is that's why, by the way, that's the one time I was called in. I was disciplined as a college professor. Called to the principal's office, called, if you will. Called into the administration, yeah, uh, dean of students and the dean of faculty at the new school for social research in, in New York City. I was teaching a class. This was uh, during the 2008 election, just before the election. And I made this argument about Obama being uh, assimilated and representing that. And that's how why he was so uh, successful and, and popular among white liberals. And I laid out the whole argument, and at the very end, I said, "I said, and therefore Obama is white." You know, of course, I didn't just say that. I it was an hour-long argument where I laid out this this whole thing, and it turned out that a, there was a woman in my class, a student in my class who was from Hawaii, who knew the Obama family, and she was black. This woman, and she reported me to the administration for saying that, and I was. Uh, told by the dean of students of the new school to never say anything like that again in my classroom. What was your response to that? I said, I, I asked him a question. I said, are you telling me what I can and cannot say in my own classroom? Uh, at which point he shut down. Because <laughs> he can't really say yes to that because they're not supposed to really have that kind of influence on you? Especially or? the dean of students. Well, no one should, uh, right. according to academic uh, freedom right. principles, but certainly not the dean of students. So, yeah. So anyway, you know, this all goes very deep. Another, my point there is just that I touched a very deep nerve, not just in that girl, but in, you know, American culture. So, uh, yeah, if you tell, if you lay this argument out to white, white liberals, they go crazy too. They can't stand it because what you're doing is accusing them of being white supremacists, which they are. Wow. Well, well, Thaddeus, this is really interesting stuff. We just need to take a break real quick to tell my listeners out there about today's sponsors at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Let's talk a little bit more about, uh, I guess, some of the conflicts that you had uh, in your academic career here with, with this work you've been doing. So uh, in two, back in 2011, you published an article stating you know, uh, the title of which was Why I Got Fired from Teaching American History. And, and well, I'll just let you take it from there because you, you know the story better than anyone. Yeah. So I was at Barnard. This is before I was at the new school. Um, actually, I was at the new school because I was essentially fired from Barnard. But uh, yeah, I started. So I got my PhD from Columbia University. And a quick point I want to touch on there. Sure. I, I know that you were in school at Columbia around the same time as Tom Woods, who I, I know you are a friend of. Were you, did you know Tom at all at that time? I met Tom once at that time. He, and that's his fault, and he'll be the first to admit it. It's not really his fault. I mean, he was, you know, 
terribly, terribly isolated. And he's, he talks about this a lot, you know, at Columbia, obviously. Oh, yeah, he, 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 talked, he talked about this when he was on my show about how his views kind of very much isolated him from the, uh, the academia and, and a lot of the culture there. Yeah, there was no way for him not to be isolated. You know, and he then, I think he entered Columbia as a more or less conservative, actually. And then when he was at Columbia, I think it was when he went to the Mises Institute and became a libertarian. So he was still, you know, if he had been sort of a, a real libertarian, he might have had a chance, but even then it would have been really hard. Uh, but sort of a conservatarian, whatever he was, it, it, there was just no one to talk to. There was no one to be friends with. It was absolutely on lockdown by you know, social democrats and socialists. I mean, that's who absolutely controls the social sciences and humanities. And I mean, it's, it's not that they think you're, it's not that they think your arguments are faulty. They think that you're a bad person. Uh, that's, that's the assumption. They, and I did too. I know this because I was one of them. I mean, I, I would, I think when I first heard about Tom at the time, I didn't put a lot of thought to it, but I mean, my, I remember my instinct being, oh, well, he's just got some personality defect. <laughs> There's, it's a characterological issue. It's not, it's not an, it's not an intellectual or political issue, right? He just can't, can't play nice with others. You know, well, it's you don't care about people, right? Um, you're selfish. You're insensitive. Sure, I mean, those are the stereotypes of you know libertarians and conservatives. To, to yeah, well, and, but it's really, really important. I mean, that's actually what they bring to the conversation, which means that the conversation can't happen. Right. So, I have another story about that. Just that just happened the other day. We can talk about it if you want. Absolutely, but uh, yeah. which wasn't involving, didn't involve me directly, but involved my friend Camille Foster, who's a libertarian, but. So I, let's see. So yes, I got my PhD at Columbia, um, in 2000 and very luckily just got a, I got a job across the street at Barnard college, the women's college, which is affiliated with Columbia. And this is right when I was starting to make my big turn intellectually and politically. I was, I still don't identify, I do not identify as a libertarian, as you may know. Um, I obviously at this point, you know, <laughs> have many, many libertarian ideas but anyway, then I certainly... I mean, political labels are difficult. I mean, I, I host a show about the ideas of liberty and libertarian ideas, but even when I'm out talking to people, I hesitate to toss that label out there because there's so much baggage that often comes with it. That I And a lot of it I just don't want to be associated with, at least from the get-go, before people really get to understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, I so I don't ident identify as libertarian, first of all, because I have some pretty significant differences with most libertarians. Sure, and we can get into some of those a little bit later on. Sure, and then second of all, it's what we were talking about earlier, is that the, the second you identify as libertarian, you, you know, you, you've lost, I mean, you, there's, you can't talk to most people. It's really, it's astonishing. So anyway, I try to avoid that label, although, you know, the fact that I've written 30 or whatever articles for reason doesn't help. Anyway, so I, anyway, the 2000, 2001, I got a job at Barnard. I was right sort of in the middle of making a turn, a hard turn away from the left and trying to figure out what my politics were. I did come across this idea right around then that the, the people who had been ignored in American history weren't just conservatives and right-wingers and unionists who weren't socialists, et cetera. It was... Maybe, maybe more importantly, ordinary people who lived outside the cultural norms of American society, the bad people, the lowbrows, the, the renegades, right? The people, criminals and prostitutes and, and gangsters and gays before it was Society's cool. Society's ne'er-do-wells. Yeah. I was like, these, they're just, they don't, they are not in these books. I had at that point read, you know, 
a thousand, literally, probably a thousand history books written by academics in which none of those people are mentioned. Sex wasn't mentioned. <laughs> you know, it's like this, you know, we all agree is. And we're know, all here alive today, so we know they were having it. This is the most important thing in any society. Anthropologists will tell you, you know, sex and sexual attitudes. And, and I am not kidding. I mean, it was never mentioned. <laughs> so I thought we were missing a lot here. Uh, so I started to look there. I started to look down. Now, at that point, in the late 90s, there was just just beginnings. A few historians had just started looking at those groups. But at Columbia, there was nothing going on. Anyway, so I, so I started to look at them. And I, it wasn't just that I didn't want to just write a history in which I, show, I put these people in the narrative and said, oh, that's cool. Look, a prostitute's in my book. Isn't that cool? There she is in the corner while they're uh, you know, talking about the, the, the Declaration of Independence. No, yeah. I wanted, I wanted to ask, you know, or, or I was interested in whether they actually changed history in some particular way. And immediately I found that they did, in fact, in major ways and did a whole lot of stuff that we all made, they pioneered a whole lot of stuff that we all now take for granted. So, so I started to build some lectures around that idea and other ideas I was developing, including, you know, my critique of progressivism as being imperialistic and my critique of the repression, the repressiveness and conservatism of left-wing politics. And stupidly, Columbia University decided, because they didn't know what I was up to, <laughs> they just saw me as a body who was willing to teach, they stupidly decided to give me the Intro to American History Survey Lecture Course, which was required <laughs> for all history majors at Columbia University. Uh, they had no idea what they were doing. Huh? So for five years, five years, every history major at Columbia had to take my course in which I gave the entire history of the United States. <laughs> so that was when I developed the ideas that became a renegade history of the United States. It was those lectures. And the class went from, when I took it over, it was 70 to 80 students. By the time I finished, it was 180 students. And, you know, I thought, wow, this is they like this. This is going well. <laughs> Did you generally get a positive response from students then? I mean, were, were there any people that objected to the kind of stuff you were teaching in class just for, from the student side of things? There's always, sure. I mean, there were, you know, I had, you know, like a Marine, a Marine <laughs> who was pissed off at what I had to say about the military, but even he liked it. He liked the class generally. He's just mad about that. But oh no, it was a very, very popular class and I became a pretty popular teacher. And so I thought, and, and so the job I had was a full-time job, but it was not tenure track. It was a sort of a contingent job where they would give me, they gave me a one-year contract and then they saw that I was doing well. And then they gave me a two-year contract and then they gave me another two-year two contract. Uh, but it wasn't tenure track. So there was no security there. Uh, after four years, that job, that line became a tenure track line which meant that they were they had to do a national search to fill that the job that I was doing but I was of course invited to apply for that and I did and because I was so successful as a teacher and because my book my dissertation had been published by Knopf major publisher my colleagues at Barnard not all of them but the ones I talked to just assumed that I would get it because I was doing so well I mean I was told this they said one of them said oh this is just pro forma there's no way you can't get you won't get this job they were the ones making the decision, by the way, about who would get the job. But they had to do a national search, and they did. And I was, you know, got an interview, and then I was given a, allowed to give a job talk, which meant I was a finalist. 
like five, uh, it's like four or five people were finalists. And I, so I, th- so I had to give a lecture to the, to the faculty. And until that it point, sort of meant to be a, a sample lecture of what you would teach in your classroom then essentially. Uh, no, it's meant to be a sample of your scholarship. It, it is okay. So it's be crafted for them to prove, you know, why you are the right man for the job. Yeah. Cause they're only interested in scholarship. They could care less really about how well you teach. But so I, that's, that's somewhat disturbing. <laughs> oh, oh my God. This is, if you want to talk about higher education, we can go on and on about that. Right. If you've been to college, you know. I mean, yeah. no, teaching I is terrible. Yep. Teaching is terrible. I can attest a lot There's of it. There's very, was. very. It's it's a it's a true point because you know I can name I can think of you know one or two teachers who are exceptionally great because the rest you know just weren't. <laughs> I mean, right. there's no other way to say it. Yeah, I mean, I spent 13, 14 years as a student, undergraduate and graduate. I had one great teacher and two pretty good teachers, and that's it. Anyway, so I I gave a lecture that is now essentially it's uh, the chapter on the civil rights movement in renegade in, uh, history as my job talk. And, you know, it's an extended critique of the civil rights leadership and how, as I was saying, conservative they were and how hostile they were to black working class culture, to things like jazz and rock and roll and to, you know, black slang and black fashion and dress styles. And I had all these quotes from Martin Luther King saying all these things and, you know, criticizing blacks for being lazy. And, you know, it was these were quotes. You know, I wasn't making this up. And half the people who approached me after. And by the way, so the luminaries of Columbia University were there, sort of very famous professors, you know, and about half the people came up to me and said that was the best job talk I've ever seen. And I had I, people who these are American historians telling me they had never they never knew what I said. They never knew about these things. They never knew these things about King or the civil rights movement or black working class culture, et cetera. They were amazed by it. One very prominent faculty member got up and walked out five minutes before I was finished. What, just in, in pure, pure disgust? I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, I could, didn't know how to read it at the time. Maybe they just had, uh, you know, had to go to the bathroom or something. I had heard nothing negative about me from anyone at that point, so I didn't really know then. I was very naive. So then I thought, wow, I got this. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get it. Um, I was told a few weeks later that someone else was hired. They hired someone, or they tried to hire, they offered the job to a woman who... I went to Columbia with, who was a graduate student with me, who had not finished her PhD yet. I had already not only finished, but published it as a book. She also didn't teach. It was an American studies position and did not, she did not teach American studies. She didn't do cultural history. She did actually, she did economic history. (laughs) Uh, How drab. And she happened to be a black woman. So it became clear to me that that was at least part of it. But also then I was told by colleagues that Immediately after my lecture, they were flooded with emails from Columbia professors who control, by the way, they control the tenure uh, process at Barnard. So they have ultimate control over this. So they have to have to be listened to flooded by emails from people at Columbia saying things like what I had to say was dangerous. That was a word that was used uh, inappropriate. When you're you're quoting actual, you know, human beings that I mean, you can judge it for yourself. So I'll. Yeah. So, and that was another obvious reason why I wasn't given the job. The, that lecture uh, became an article in the leading American studies academic journal. 
<laughs> so you, anyone can read it. It's called The Color of Discipline and Judge for Yourselves. It's done quite well. It's one of the most downloaded articles in American Quarterly. Sure, and we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for this. Yeah, uh, the editor of American Quarterly told me that himself. So, yeah, so that's what got me. You know, that's what was considered to be completely out of bounds. Columbia is a very conservative place. Now, it's as I said, it's you know, it's dominated by liberals and some socialists and some Marxists, but it's you know, culturally especially conservative. They kind of demonstrate what I've been talking about: the conservatism of the left. And they're just not interested in anything other than, you know, <sighs> economics, government institutions, government, you know, so particular social movements, the good social movements, anything that falls outside of that, they're just not interested in. They think it's either a distraction or somehow reactionary. Anyway, so that's that story. I thought then that my career and possibly my life was over. I didn't know what to do at that point. The job so market. So not only did you get the did you not get this tenure position, but you were essentially out of a job as well? Oh, I was. Yeah. I had wow. one more year on my contract. So by the way, I had to teach another year there, you know, around these people, Ugh. but I know, but most importantly, I mean, the academic job, job market was abysmal at the time. So hundreds of people would apply for every job I applied to. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had a two year old son at the time. And I was walking around central park one day thinking about this desperation. And I thought, well, you know, I do have these lectures that I wrote that seem to be pretty popular among the students. Maybe I could turn them into a book. And because I was living in New York City, I happened to know some people in publishing. And I told them this idea, which was a really, really rough idea at the time. And they kind of latched onto it and loved it. And pretty soon, I mean, within just weeks, I had uh, an agent. And then you know, several months later, I wrote a, I wrote a proposal, book proposal. And then several months later, I got a, a very nice deal with a, with Simon Schuster to, for renegade history. So that, that was a, you know, a ma massive turning point in my life, obviously. And, uh, yeah. So <laughs> there you go. Did the, the success <laughs> of your book, did that, did that lead to, uh, your ability to get back into academics then? <laughs> oh no, it's hurt it. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, it has just the opposite effect. No. So academics are afflicted by terrible envy <laughs> uh, of anyone. Uh, so they're like, oh, this guy, this guy's getting success with this thing. Well, we don't want yes. him around. Yeah. So it's well known that people who's published with commercial presses, you know, are kind of looked down upon, but it's mostly by envy because of envy. And what's interesting, one of the interesting things and sort of depressing things about Renegade is that it has been just completely ignored by uh, academia. There has not been a single academic review of it. I have seen no commentary, public commentary on it by any academic. Not even negative commentary. They just ignore that's, it. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, <laughs> nothing negative, nothing positive, just nothing. Uh, the New York Times did not review it. The Washington Post did not review it. The New Yorker did not mention it. And the sales of this book are kind of in the area that would typically justify some sort of, a, you know, review acknowledgement. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a, I mean, it's a major publisher. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'd sold much better than most books that are reviewed. The vast majority of books that are reviewed. It's not a bestseller, but it is. I know that it has sold far more copies than most books that are reviewed in the New York Times. There's no question about that. Anyway, so it's all been it's all been grassroots and word of mouth and, you know, blogs and podcasts and you know, people just finding out about it and talking about it among the, uh, the media rebels, if you will, the renegades. Yeah, which there. has been which has been a really great thing, you know. And, and I get a lot of a lot of the fans of the book are 
people who are very, very smart until they're basically intellectuals, but they're mostly self-taught, you know, people who had sort of either a bad experience in college or didn't go to college. The main thing I think I learned from college is that I have a lot to learn out there outside of college. Yes. I think that that's the, the biggest thing that, that I took from it. And that's kind of leaving college is when my own self-exploration began. And that when I really tried to look into the history and politics in a much deeper way than was ever presented by my professors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm really glad I went to college. I learned a lot there, but most of it was that they, that Antioch, the college I went to in Ohio, basically just gave me a lot of freedom. And so I just sort of went into the stacks and read on my own, thought on my own. And, you know, I was just sort of allowed to do that and, and encouraged to do that, you know, which high school, public high school did not do at all. That, I mean, so that's really what was great about it for me. And, and that I was around other people who had similar interests, you know, who were interested in, in politics and philosophy, et cetera. So college is not worthless, but boy, it's got some problems. All right, guys. Well, if that seemed like an abrupt time to cut off the interview, if you're thinking you didn't even say bye to the guy, what's wrong with you? How rude? Well, have no fear. Because Thaddeus Russell was very, very generous with his time with me, and we actually went on a lot longer, a lot longer. Now, as you know, I usually keep these shows around 35, 40 minutes or so, and I like to keep everything pretty digestible for you guys. I like you to be able to listen to everything we offer. I want you to be able to squeeze it into your schedule. So I decided to split this one up into two parts. That's right. Part two of my interview with Thaddeus Russell will be airing this coming Wednesday on episode 237. So be sure to be tuned in back for that. And if you're not happy with that decision, if you wish I just put it all in one episode and left it all here out for you, well, I'm sorry, but there is a way. You can tell me that. You can come on over to the Lions of Liberty Forum, our private group on Facebook. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum into your little search bar on Facebook, or we'll also link to it in the show notes for today's program, lionsofliberty.com slash 236. You can also send me email, hate mail, <laughs> feedback of any kind is welcome. You can send it directly to me at mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Now, the best way to make sure you don't miss the rest of this interview with Thaddeus Russell it's by hitting that subscribe button on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever it is you listen to this program. You can find us on Google Play now as well. Hit that subscribe button. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star rating and a great review, it will do wonders for putting us in front of more people because that is how iTunes and Stitcher calculate what shows to push up, what shows to promote more. So it really does help when you guys go out there and do this. I know that you, a lot of you have been helping out and have been going, giving us reviews, giving us ratings. I appreciate that so much freaking much guys because that's what allows me to know <laughs> that this is working that we're spreading these ideas that we're advancing this conversation now i gotta be honest i'm doing a lot of traveling in the month of august so splitting this interview into two parts it does actually help me a little bit helps ensure that i get you all the content that you're looking for here at lines of liberty and to continue these great conversations that's what i strive to do so i figured it would be better to split this thing into two parts than risk not having a show one week or something like that. So please do tune back for more from Thaddeus Russell because we have so much more to get into. We barely scratched the surface of his book, A Renegade History of the United States. We're also going to discuss some of uh, Thaddeus's objections to libertarianism. We'll get into that a little bit, and we'll also talk, of course, more about Renegade University, which should be really fascinating. That To see that Thaddeus is actually taking these ideas and launching them out on his own, I'm pretty excited about it. So guys, tune back in this coming Wednesday. Until then, live long and live free.